Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. You know, when people are encouraged to take control of their lives rather than to let other people control them, it's often called self-determination. Now, in that sense, it can be a good thing if taking control has to do with personal responsibility, with the setting of reasonable goals, taking sensible actions. But there's a dark side to self-determination as well. When people decide that, that they don't need anyone else in the world, they can become like a law unto themselves and end up determining their destinies based only on personal preference or on what they think will help them gain power or to get ahead of the pack. It sometimes manifests itself in embracing certain versions of truth that people just prefer, regardless of facts to the contrary. Self-determination can be fueled by falsehood just as it can by a desire for personal responsibility. The ancient Hebrew people certainly struggled with this. In uh, the chapter in Exodus, right before the text that Eleanor read this morning, right back in chapter 32, Moses is only out of sight for a short time before the people decide to determine their own way by having Moses' brother Aaron melt down the gold jewelry that they brought with them from Egypt and craft a golden calf that they could worship. Now, this idol gave them something they could actually see and touch and it was also a reminder of the oppressive but predictable life that they had in Egypt, where gold was possessed by the Egyptian elite and not generally held by their Hebrew slaves. At any rate, uh, as you probably know, this whole thing goes quite poorly, almost like a, a revisitation of the disaster of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve throw a bomb into the paradise that God has given to them. <clears throat> Now, understandably, God has been quite annoyed with the people. He's just ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. But Moses steps in and he pleads their case, similar to the way that Abraham haggled with God over the fate of Sodom. God relents and even renews his promise to lead the people to a land of their own. But God says there's one caveat. He will not go up among them, he says, as they push their way through hostile territory. Now, there are at least a couple of reasons, I think, for God limiting his presence among the people. First, he's, he's clearly angry at them, and, and just being with them could prove hazardous for the people. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. It's that final scene at the end of the first Indiana Jones movie, right? Later's Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the bad Nazi guys summon God's presence from the Ark of the Covenant with heads exploding and faces melting and all that kind of stuff. Having God show up may not always be a good deal, depending on how people have been behaving. Sorry for the spoiler alert on a movie that's like 30 years old. Anyway, the other reason is that in the Bible, God has a tendency to give his people what they want, even if it's to their own peril. For example, in, in Psalm 106, it lays out Israel's history right up through their time in the wilderness and shows how God responded. And, and here's how part of it reads in the, in the version that's found in the Book of Common Prayer. <clears throat> a craving 
came upon them in the wilderness and they tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their desire and sent leanness in their soul. Well, of course, after the whole scene with the golden calf, God did send a plague among the people, a, a wasting disease as some translations of the Bible show. But the overall result of their faithlessness and rebellion was a, a stripping of their souls down to the bone, if, if souls could actually have bones. Have you ever done that? Have you ever set out to determine your own destiny and just left God in the dust? I have to confess that I have, and, and too many times to even talk about. Whenever I have made significant decisions in my life as though God was unnecessary to the process, the result of that decision has ranged from just okay to completely disastrous. That, that, that's my range. Uh, I have experienced that leanness of the soul where I feel like I've just discovered that I'm starving to death and lack any kind of proper nourishment. Now, by contrast, when I've made big decisions where I've not only pressed into God, but also when it's as though I see his fingerprints all over everything, the result, while not always easy, has indeed been life-giving. And, and maybe some of you can relate to that. You know, we've, we've discussed this kind of thing at length on our church council, uh, as well as in some meetings with all of you, as we've talked about the best way forward in both calling a new pastor and even in, in our trying to get our minds around what it means to meet together again in person. <clears throat> but rather than jumping right into the business end of things, on the council, we decided to pause and to seek God through a process of prayer and reflection over several weeks. Our hope has been to indeed see God's fingerprints on whatever will come about in the days to come, rather than to just default to our own version of self-determination. So, God is allowing the Hebrew people to move forward, but in the process, they're going to have to experience what it's like to live with self-determination. There's gonna be violence along the way and a lot of difficulty to deal with, God isn't abandoning them, but rather he's letting them taste the bitter fruit of their actions. Uh, St. Paul seemed to recognize the same thing in his letter to the Romans as he explained to both Jewish and Gentile Christians that they shared a common brokenness before God and that people in general were guilty of the kind of self-determination that ended up being destructive. He speaks of the way that God let people have what they were chasing after, even when the objects of their desires had no relationship to God. And he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave people up. He let them chase after the darkest of their desires. And the way that God's wrath was demonstrated was not by lightning bolts on the people, but with them having to deal with the world of their own construction, in essence, to live with the equivalent of a world without God. You know, in thinking about this, I can't help but reflect on the story of the lost son or the prodigal son in the New Testament book of Luke. The son wants what he wants, and he wants it outside of the care and protection 
of his father. So he wheedles his father out of his share of the inheritance and he blows it all in partying like a rock star. And the father lets the son have what he desires. He knows it's bad for the son, even reflecting later when the son returns that the boy had been the equivalent of dead. But the father still lets the son go, giving him up to what he knows will not be good for the son, giving him, giving him up to a, a kind of spiritual and relational death. The son gets to determine his life, even to a destructive end. And yet, the father never gives up on his son and receives him with joy when he returns. And God never gives up on his people, even though they will repeatedly go their own way as if they have forgotten about God. They will suffer the consequences of their actions and will experience life outside of the love and care of God. But then Moses, standing in the tradition of Abraham, takes this opportunity to argue with God. He pleads for the people, reminding God that they are his people, they are God's people, and that if God doesn't go with them to the land of promise, then there is no point in going at all. And God hears Moses and relents. And now he will indeed go with the people. But Moses wants something more. He says that he wants to know God's ways, good enough right there, but he also says that he wants to see God's glory. But God's response suggests that Moses doesn't really know what it is that he's asking. Now, now perhaps Moses, discouraged by the behavior of the people and concerned that his ability to intercede on their behalf may be running its course, is desiring a glimpse of the beauty and the promise that is to be found in the unbridled, unhindered, unhidden, clearly visible presence of God. Maybe he wants to see God in his full brilliance so that there is no doubt that he and the people are really being led to a land of promise. I sort of get that desire, don't you? I mean, there are times when I want God to shine his glory on everything I am struggling with so that there will be no doubt about my way forward. What I really want is absolute certainty about things. Because once I've got my certainty all together, I don't have to just settle for being confident, settle for trusting in God to lead me, which of course makes faith somewhat unnecessary, right? Please note the irony in my voice. So God cautions Moses about his request. If, if God were to reveal himself in his fullness, Moses would not survive the encounter. But God offers to show Moses something that he really needs to see, something that speaks of God's intentions and purposes. God will not show Moses his glory, but he will show him his goodness. Now, the next scene in the story is striking in that, in that God describes his passing in very 
human terms, what we would call anthropomorphic terms, as though to see his face is to see his glory, to see a brilliance that would end up annihilating Moses. But to see God's back is to see the evidence of his passing. And that evidence is the very goodness of God. Now we get another reference in scripture about seeing God's glory. It's a reference that suggests as much wonder and awe that Moses must have experienced in his encounter with God. And it comes from the prologue to the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Along with Moses, we cannot see the glory of the Father and live. But we can see the glory of Jesus the Son because he has lived among us as one full of grace and truth. In Jesus, the goodness of God provides us with evidence of God's glory. There is something very important here for us, I think. Moses stands before God, representing the people to him. The people themselves, a people through whom God intends to bring blessing to all the families of the earth, represent the people of the world to God. As Moses stands in the gap for the Hebrew people, so are the people supposed to ultimately stand in the gap for the world. They are to be a priestly people, serving God, as they bring blessing to the world. And what will be the evidence that God has called them to do that? It won't be God's unbridled glory. It'll be his goodness. We are a people who have come to know Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, the word made flesh come to live among us, the one through whom God's glory is revealed to us as grace and truth. And we can demonstrate the evidence of God's glory to the world because he has made his goodness known to us. We, as followers of Jesus, as the church, are to be a people of goodness for the sake of the world. But we, as the church universal, we can't be a people of goodness if we join in on the fostering of division, whether in our families or in our churches or in our nation. We can't be a people of goodness if we bear false witness. Even if the narratives that we are tempted to embrace support our own preferences or even our own biases. And we can't be a people of goodness if we elevate our demands for our rights to self-determination over our call to responsibility. But we can be a people of goodness as we seek reconciliation over separation and forgiveness over vengeance. We can be a people of goodness when we seek to be truth tellers, even when it causes us to have to rethink what we thought we already knew. We can be a people of goodness when we view our rights as gifts 
that empower us to live a shared life of mutual responsibility and care. We can be a people who leave trails everywhere we go, like breadcrumbs and footprints offering evidence of God's goodness that he has granted to us, both for our blessing and for the sake of the world. And we do this as we ride in the wake of God's goodness as it has been revealed to us in Jesus. You know, there are some wonderful stories I've heard from people here at the Vine about reaching out to their neighbors in need, about the, the care and love given to the guests at the laundry shower ministry, and, and other beautiful accounts like the ones that we talked about in our last Tuesday night online gathering. These are all really good things, but they're even more than that. They are evidences of the goodness of God that has been granted to us. They are signs and wonders that point to the reality of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is real right now and that will one day be fulfilled in such a way that God's unbridled glory will be revealed to us. I have to say there is a, uh, there's a lesson that I keep trying to learn. It's like I learn it in the moment and then I forget about it later and I have to go back and learn it all over again. It's a lesson that says when I am struggling to come to grips with God's presence, even wondering if he has left me in the dust, the most important thing I can do is participate in his goodness. That is, I can be present to others not looking to get my own needs taken care of, but rather to invest in others, to care for them, to listen to them. It's amazing how my own needs get addressed in the process of serving others. Last Tuesday night, some of the folks who were there shared about the blessing that they received by participating in the laundry shower ministry. The guests who come to that are generally pretty needy and some are even homeless. And certainly having a safe place to get cleaned up and to do some laundry and enjoy some friendship is a gift to them. But somehow the people who come to serve experience something profound going on in their own lives. I think it's because they are participating in God's goodness. And in doing so, they are actually experiencing glimpses of his glory. Being responsible, setting goals, taking reasonable action, those are all really good things if that's what we mean by self-determination. Especially when those things have been bathed in prayer and submitted to the goodness of God. But there's a kind of self-determination that we would be wise to just let go. It's not limited to the kind of thinking that makes self-fulfillment, especially without regard to others, the ultimate goal in life. Self-determination can also come out of fear and anger over losing what we think is, has been valued, over missing out on opportunities, over thinking that others are taking things away from us. We can let go of those things because God's goodness has already passed before us in the person and work of Jesus. And we may now ride the wake of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the world that God intends to redeem. And in the process, 
we learn that our self is best determined when God's goodness is wrapped all around it. Well, we all come to this place recognizing that, you know, we've got our stuff. <clears throat> we've all got our versions of private self-determination. And, and so we come together as we do each week in a time of telling the truth about ourselves. Uh, we say it together because we share it together, but we bring it to God as, as a point of confession. And will you join me in this prayer of confession today? Father God, you are the one who leads us from darkness into light, from captivity into freedom, from anxiety into peace, from despair into joy. Yet we long to break free, choosing independence, convinced of our own wisdom, forgetting your love and grace. Forgive us, draw close to us, embrace us once again in your loving arms and enable us to follow you in worship and grateful service each day of our lives. Amen. And now, may the God of love and power forgive us and free us from our sins, heal and strengthen us by his spirit, and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord.